very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, we just want to mention we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a dollar a month there, but if not, maybe leave us an awesome review on iTunes. Either way, we appreciate you all. Today, Taylor and I are honored to bring you Michael Hart, who is returning to the show. May need no introduction, but he is professor of literature and romance studies at Duke University, co-author with Antonio Negri of The Labor of Dionysus, A Critique of the State Form, Empire, Multitude, War, and Democracy in the Age of Empire, Commonwealth, Declaration, and Assembly. Today, we're going to be focusing on Michael's relatively new book, which was released in September of last year, The Subversive 70s, which is a kind of a look back at revolutionary movements from the 70s that kind of set the stage for today's activism. So first of all, just welcome back to the show, Michael. We really appreciate you joining us early on your Sunday morning. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I think I mentioned to you before we we began that we kind of wanted, I wanted to know the origin of this book for you and how it crystallized you set forth the reasons for this very clearly in the introduction, so I won't preempt you, but maybe you have a memory about this project forming in your mind that can give us some insight into the constellation of themes and ideas that populate the book. Sure, there's a lot of different ones, and I'll try a couple different, maybe okay. intersecting ones and see how they work together. I mean, the one starting out just personal and anecdotal, which is that it's not a trip back in memory for me. I did not experienced the politics of the 70s. I was alive. I was in junior high school. Some people are politicized in junior high school. I wasn't. And so really my political and activist life began in the 1980s. So the 70s was, you know, a research project for me. Another thing to say about that is, um, listen, I, maybe this doesn't matter to the listeners at all, but, you know, I hadn't read a book, written a book alone, you know, without Tony Negri in 30 years. And so mm -hmm. As you know, and probably most of the listeners knows, Tony died in December, you know, December 2023. And so I figured, you know, I couldn't just write the same work that I've been doing with Tony without Tony. So I had to, in some ways, take a different approach. So this was my attempt at, in some ways, at a different type of work. And, you know, maybe to readers, it doesn't seem that different. To me, it seemed very different. So, okay, then now more substantial things. Those were all really just whatever, personal mm -hmm. anecdotes. My main interest in this is that I feel like we, I'm not exactly sure who's included in that we, but I, there are a lot of us, have a great revolutionary desire today, but have trouble working out the axes of what it might mean. And I think, unfortunately, 
the revolutionary movements of the 1960s remain as the prominent memory. And it's not, I think, a copyable memory. You know, it's not something that's, that there is, you know, the model for us. Either thinking of, you know, the long 60s, including Havana and, you know, about the Cuban Revolution in 1959 or free speech in Berkeley in, in the early 1960s or 68 in its global formations. I And this is an open argument in the book in a way that I feel like, or not I feel like, I argue that the revolutionary movement in the 60s, however transformative and world-altering there were, really belonged to a previous era. And that the revolutionary movements of the 70s, in some ways I think obscured historically, are really the beginning of our era. What I mean by that, in part, is that there were radical transformations in some ways as a response to the revolutionary movements of the 60s. You think of this just in, you know, these are rather, I don't know, commonplace, but there's a lot written about and important things written about the birth of neoliberalism, say, dating it in 1973 or something like that as a radical shift. The economic transformations of the exporting of industrial production from the dominant countries to the subordinate ones, the shift from Fordism to post-Fordism. I mean, I can go through a number of things, but I think listeners recognize that, that notion of a paradigm shift. So I think there's a general cultural memory that the 1960s are the last revolutionary movement and the 1970s were the were the beginning of of the collapse and somehow prelude to the 1980s and Reagan Thatcher etc. And in fact the revolutionary movements of the 1970s get obscured when in fact as I'm saying the those movements pose the outlines of what kinds of things are possible today. At least I feel, I don't know if readers are going to feel the same way, I feel that reading about the kinds of problems that they uncovered and tried to address are the same problems we face today. See, that's what I mean by, that would be the ultimate test for my claim that it's the beginning of our era, is that the same political problems are being addressed. And and maybe in the course of our talking, I mean, that would be the, that would be the, what would you call it? The test of that hypothesis would be that the kind of things we end up talking about in the next, in the next hour turn out to be things that people recognize as their own problems in revolutionary or or activist progressive activist and and theorizing theorizing today one of the things that i liked the way you just described the role of the 70s i mentioned to you and i've mentioned to coop it always seems like something that i just soaked up from the intellectual milieu that the 70s as i've been calling it and i may have taken this from your verbiage is like seen as a decade of retrenchment from kind of the golden age of the 60s and it's just a kind of long slide down to the 80s and the domination of neoconservatism neoliberalism but what i really liked is how you framed it in your introduction to the work setting up the work as a whole this notion that there is a strategic blindness too going on in this obscuring of the of the subversiveness of the 70s particularly you frame it as a strategic blindness of the how and the and the who and some of the things they get brought up some of the and I'll just broadly paint them because again they're from your introduction and, and so it can help us go further into the work there's a question of a kind of and perhaps a rosy colored picturing of the 60s as as non-violence and 70s had an increased militancy which again in broad strokes may or may not be true but perhaps dulls the complexity of the situations 
there's also the the question of and again i guess i guess the question would be what is the narrative that we are trying to tell with this strategic blindness of the 70s and the movements that were going on like what kind of grand meta narrative or whatever does it serve to to glorify the 60s in this way and i i do think that one of the movements i mean particularly for i guess continental philosophy may 68 is kind of seen as this traumatic event and you know Deleuze and Guattari say things somewhat dramatically that may 68 did not happen or did not take place you know there's all this that seems to also give more credence to this fact that 68 is the end of of something and the forestalling of of revolution when you clearly show that not to be the case to maybe play devil's advocate perhaps on their part it's not necessarily a strategic blindness but a, a naivete or something maybe that there, there's a little bit going on of, of, of a little bit of, of ignorance that's not necessarily malicious, but it does seem like there is some sort of narrative going on constructing in this quick history. And I also think that, that you point out throughout the work that judging revolutions and revolutionary movements by their outcomes and aftermaths is perhaps a great way of obscuring the seeds of the of the genesis of the problems that are being faced on the ground and so that's another type of obscurity that comes about and i think Deleuze does this really well in his in the abecedaire on you know on the left where becoming revolutionary in history are always going to be kind of at odds with one another looking at revolutionary movements from a historical standpoint is always going to color them in ways that denigrate them but those are just some of the few things that popped out to me in your intro and that maybe helped to orient us along the way in your book? I do think this question about strategic blindness is important, at least in a certain historical narrative of the period. And, and in part because I think it leaves out some of the most powerful and maybe relevant movements for us today. The 70s are really the time of the development of feminist movements in the U.S. and many other parts of the world, of course, a shift in in anti-racist movements, also in various parts of the world, gay liberation movements are really 1970s movements. I mean, you could also, the way you were saying it too, you know, these decade divisions are never precise or something like that. But you could say instead that, you know, we see the, the pre-1968, you know, 1968 is the ending or 1968 is the beginning. And so what I'm what we're really looking at it here, at least in certain national contexts, you could say it that way, is 1968 is a is a launching point rather than a a defeat and an end. A lot of this has to do also with, I think, at least in certain perspective of the narratives, with the industrial working class as the central figure of revolutionary possibility. I mean, there was in many, well, in dominant and subordinate countries. I mean, this is true in Latin America too, but certainly Europe and the US and and elsewhere that there was a view that uh, throughout much of the 60s that the industrial working class and the factory was the site of revolutionary struggle. And that, of course, other movements were included, you know, like, but often included in a, in a subordinated way. The parties would pose, the, there is the woman question, or there is the race question, et cetera. And of course, you know, they were part of it, but the, but the assumption was, and now I'm talking in, in rather generalized vague terms, that, that the industrial working class was, was the primary actor and others could, and so that people could go to the factory, people, you know, intellectuals could 
could go work in the factory, but also just go in as the leadership of the industrial workers. And that's what really shifts in the 1970s. And I think shifts in a way, you know, so one can look back at it historically, and I think there's plenty of narratives we see of this, with a kind of nostalgia for, now I'm talking about just a vague left, you know, like a nostalgia for the days when there were good factory jobs and, you know, strong right. unions or something. But also in, in more activist circles, you know, sort of like, Often in the U.S., we now call it a class first perspective. I mean, one that, you know, doesn't discount other axes of struggle and other structures of domination, but nonetheless thinks that that capital is primary. And and not only that, the, the, that the industrial working class is in some ways an adequate representation of the working class as a whole. You know, so this is all I would say, you know, I would even go one step further. Now, now I'm now I'm hypothesizing about it, about some general frameworks. But I do think that behind this, in some ways, is a nostalgia for, you know, the, behind the, let's call it, continuing conception that the working class and working class struggle is the primary struggle. Other struggles are in some ways subordinated to it. And even that the factory and industrial production is the primary form of that, you know, which I do think continues in some circles of the left today. I hope that you recognize what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I think that in some ways this is driven by a a kind of nostalgia for a period when the choices were clear and clean. Like we know what side we're on and we know the lines of struggle and there's a kind of clarity to it. Whereas this is a component of the 1970s, which I think is maybe maddening for people, but super important, which is revolutionary struggle is super complicated. The negotiation among different sectors of struggle, the recognition of the interwoven nation of different structures of domination, this is not a simple either-or question. And even the, the question, whose side are you on, takes some answering. You know, what would the phrase be now? You're like staying with the trouble, like not trying to pose the division in clear terms. I think any, and, and so now maybe just come back to a general theoretical or political level, which is that what I would say was necessary today, and this is what I'm finding in many of these movements in the 1970s, is to recognize unequal footing these different axes of struggle, class struggle, of course, but also anti-racist struggle and feminist struggle and queer struggle and whatever, a variety of other, you know, I, mean, I think it's important that there actually be an open list of these struggles, that that requires a, a constant negotiation and recognition of the different axes. I, I think that that's a, a constant and complicated process of yeah. putting these things together. And that's something that emerges in the 1970s, which I think, I think it's partly for that reason that it gets obscured. When you were saying before, I, I, I thought of it as a kind of a strategic forgetting, you know, like what I meant there was that was a kind of, you know, forgetting of the ways in which these different movements broke the single view of the left. Feminist movements in variety of countries refused the leadership of the male industrial workers. Mm -hmm. Anti-racist movements refuse white leadership. I mean, this this kind of fracturing, you know, the fracturing is the is the typical narrative also among historians, you know, like the 70s, the right. age of fracturing. I rather would put the same term in a positive term. It's, it's the age of multiplicity. And yeah. that to think multiplicity is actually a an important political task. I was trying to flesh out a little bit what you were saying there about that. No, about that strategic forgetting. This is really good because it leads to one one of the other points you making you make in the intro about this quote unquote unity in the left, which is masking these hierarchies. And so this nostalgia, not just for you know good 
factory jobs or whatever is also a, a kind of nostalgia for an old left that would have been unified under class struggle at the expense or the ignoring neglect of these other intersectional struggles. And I think that what's interesting, and you do show a couple of historians by name whom I don't recall, but it's immaterial at the moment, but it's this question of the 70s is seen as a decade of fracture in the left. But the, but the irony is, again, that these fractures were already there. It's just coming to the light and playing itself out on on stage and something that was just deferred not just in the 60s but obviously over over time as though these were as you're saying subordinate struggles and i think that it becomes important for example showing the kind of mutual constitution and conditioning of capital and patriarchy for example that it is naive. And again, this could be a part of that nostalgia and strategic blindness and forgetting that you're discussing. It's naive to think one can merely tackle class issues and then leave patriarchy intact. That seems to be a kind of uh, nostalgia as though we could leave, again, we could leave, as you're saying, white, white leaders could stay in power or men could stay in power on the left. And that's, that's kind of the old dream that would keep things simple when it's not just more complex, but more nuanced, more um, these multiple lines of struggle. I see it less as, as fracturing, but more as coming to grips with political realities. And so it, you're kind of traversing this weird fantasy that, that the quote unquote new leadership would somehow resemble the old, except you'd have all the, the socialist communist, you know, structures. That seems a bit naive. I was reminded while you were talking that a, a friend of mine with whom I was talking about the, the research on Chile in the chapter, Ariel Dorfman said something like, oh, Michael, we have to renew our old slogan, you know, like, el pueblo unido jamás será vencido, the, the people united will never be defeated. He says, we have to do something more like the multitude articulated will never be defeated or something. He, he had <laughs> yeah. a way of uh, making that rhyme in Spanish too. Right. Okay. Um, you're right to attack. I mean, I, I think that this notion of unity is something that isn't helpful today. It doesn't mean, because I don't mean that things should be separate. I mean, those aren't the two choices. Maybe that's right. the way we should put it. One way of, of, of addressing this is recognizing at a theoretical level that the, that the interwoven and mutually constituted nature of different structures of power then allows us to recognize the need for struggles that are articulated with one another. But one doesn't have to go that route. You know, like one can look at, I think, at variety of um, what I find the most interesting movements today that are always demanding. I mean, that's one thing I think readers in the U.S., but I, I, other countries too, I think of how this works in Argentina, for instance, recognize that demand of every movement, even when they can't fulfill it, is an articulation among different struggles. Okay, I shouldn't make it every movement, but there are, uh, you know, I think one recognized that today. I don't know, even talking just whatever banal incidental terms, you know, you go to a Starbucks strike, you know, of the baristas outside the thing, and they're not just talking about their wages. They're talking about linking racism and, and queer struggles and questions about Palestine, of course, and, and all number of other things. So it's, I think it's part of the movement culture today. That's, I guess, where I would put it. And this is partly giving it a theoretical background that's leading to that. I do think that there was a quote, I believe, from could be from Young or Lord, which was heterogeneity of subjects and struggle and unity of action. So the unity takes mm. on 
it's no longer subordinated though to a kind of singular vision that would be as i said naive but is already thinking in terms of articulating these intersectional as you said multiplicity i mean there's no better way than to repeat that but that heterogeneity the the sort of you know heterogenesis of struggle is important and it is interesting to to see and to think about because we can also have a kind of rosy colored picture of of unity that that might be naive where we would think that like in your chapter on gay liberation that marxist groups would be welcoming of sharing in the struggle when in fact that is not it's, it's not always not the case but in many cases there's pushback and and as you already pointed out what was the way they phrased it the women's the women's problem or something like this yeah. as though, it, as though it, it was it was again not a subordinate but adjacent somehow to the side and it's as though we'll get to that question once we defeat capital that deferral seems to be maybe the carrot behind the stick or something like this right that <laughs> you know just keep quiet and that'll be something for if not tomorrow then next generation that type of kicking the can down the road shows itself to be hollow in many ways and i guess the last part of the intro before we i guess we can dive deeper in is um I guess it's it's really two part, right? Where it's you're measuring the aftermath or the outcomes of the revolutionary movement, you know, what Deleuze calls becoming revolutionary versus the impetus. And I think that that part of that is this question of what, and again, is a simplified narrative of the 60s as kind of nonviolent again even if these these are broad strokes and then the 70s as this increased militancy and, and violence and so there is this sense in which the 70s from the get-go is written out or again you know ignored or seen as some sort of downfall in these larger narratives i thought that the way you tackled this question from the get-go but also in particular instances was really helpful because i do feel like in broad terms, again, this is one of the many ways that, especially in the United States, communism gets written out from the start, right? Because it's associated with, let's say, you know, the worst atrocities we can attribute to, whether it be, you know, Stalinism or, or whatnot. It gets reduced to a sort of least common denominator of, you know, these are the outcomes you're going to get. Whereas I'm just reminded of something Badu said about these instantiations of marxism communism do not exhaust the essence of marxism and communism so there's a way of sort of again looking at it historically in a historically kind of backward way where we see the outcomes and overdetermine the genesis of solutions on the ground to the problems facing individuals and collectives so i want to pull out two separate I'm not sure how separate they are streams of, of what you just said. One is about, and I feel a need to even develop a kind of mode of, of reading revolutionary struggles that doesn't discount them, like you said, just because the fact that they were defeated. In fact, this was uh, interesting for me that a good friend of mine who read the manuscript before his study said, and he was someone older than me who had you know lived through the 70s in a way, and, okay. said, and he said, look, Michael, this is all very inspiring and everything, but we lost. 
you're like, mm-hmm. we lost in all these. Where, yeah. you know, how can you, what can you do from that? And so my response is a conceptual distinction about that between failure and defeat. I see failure as being an indication of an internal flaw. And hence, movements that fail, you know, we might learn something from them, but they are essentially a dead end because their flaw has been revealed and they destroyed themselves, you know, in some ways. Or defeat's different. Defeat means that there was a superior external force. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean there was an internal flaw. And so in some ways, defeats, they're not a dead end. You know, defeats are, you pick up a defeat and move forward. I don't know, you know, think historically to the classic things. I don't know, the Paris commune is defeated. Mm-hmm. It's not that it failed, or at least that's the view within. Anyway, that I think you know what, what I mean by that. So that's mm-hmm. that's part of it about, I do quote a, a well-known line from Robin Kelly to try to do the same thing where Robin Kelly, this is in uh, Race Rebels, I think, in the in the introduction to the book, where he says, we shouldn't judge a movement on its outcomes, but on the intensity of its vision. And I think that's a good point, but I, I think I want to add a little bit more to that, this question about, you know, what has to do an evaluation of a movement and it's and the fact of it being defeated doesn't yeah like I said doesn't necessarily mean it's it's now it's now finished or it's now useless to us etc. So that's one side of it which I do think analytically or you know like as a way of reading the relevance of the past for us is helpful for me. There's another thing that you know was closely linked to this which you were bringing up which which also was important to me about the question of violence you know, which is many-sided in this. Like you said, you know, I do think there are certain historical narratives and, you know, both among some historians, but also just a, a much more broad culture view of the 1960s. Yeah, where the, you know, was an era of peace and love and and sort of everyone being nonviolent struggles, I don't know, Selma or, you know, like this sort of, right. this sort of view. Whereas there was both a lot of repression in the 60s and also the use, you know, strategic use of violence and strategic use of nonviolence. It's true, though, the 1970s, it's really, I would say, the most dominant line is because really an extreme increase of repression that then creates a much more violent atmosphere, you know, that makes protesting, that makes nonviolent protesting seem useless and inadequate and so poses different activist challenges. Which then leads to one of the, I think, standard narratives that you were gesturing toward, which is something like the 70s is when the left destroyed itself by resorting to violence. This actually, even in my own thinking about working on this project, was a big obstacle to me because the left clandestine armed struggle groups, you know, the most famous ones being, say, the Red Army Faction in Germany, the Red Brigades right. in Italy, Weather Underground in the US, or Black Liberation Army, you know, these. They're very different, those ones that I've mentioned among themselves, but they take up all the scene. You know, like they, mm. they are amazingly spectacular. And both the right and the left at the time and in historical memory have them playing a really outsized role for their numbers, for their stuff. For me, this was like what I was saying. The problem for me is they eclipse what was most interesting that was happening, you know, which were not certainly clandestine groups, and there were not groups often, you know, mostly not groups that were, that made armed struggle primary. In some ways, I saw the project as trying to say, okay, let's hold off the lure of these spectacles of these armed struggle groups and try to investigate what was going on beneath that. 
eventually, and the project was able to come back at it in another direction, because it's not a matter, I think, and you were suggesting this too, it's not a matter, and I think most of the activists I'm dealing with in a variety of countries at the time, it's not a matter of violence versus nonviolence. It's rather understanding strategically what roles and types of violence are necessary and productive. What I mean by this is I, I think, and I have, I feel like I have an understanding of the motivations of many of these armed struggle groups that, that I was just mentioning, you know, the, but there were many other movements and one of my critiques of them, I should say, maybe this is, I'm going a little bit too long about this, is that they were partly because of their clandestinity separated from the movements. I think there's a kind of political poverty that developed within these left arm struggle groups because of their separation from the movements and not being able to develop within the movements. And at the same time, there was certain kinds of armed struggle that went on in, in the movements themselves, not in a clandestine way, not in a, I mean, the resisting a certain militarization. I mean, with the US audience, you know, the primary example would be the Black Panther Party because the Black Panther Party managed a kind of dual organization of some kind of militarization or threat of militarization or something like that, which is in defense of the community. But that allowed to happen social projects of development of the community, the breakfast programs, the free clinics, et cetera. So that kind of thing, it, which then I found in many other countries and, and tried to sort of show the continuity of how a movement in Italy worked the same way, how a movement in Turkey worked the same way. Of all that's to go, it's it, I, it's a long detour to try to struggle with this question about violence. You know, because like I said, in in some ways, the a certain mode of violence, although in some ways extremely effective and spectacular. In fact, because of its success in gaining media attention, etc., poses right. such of a problem. It shouldn't for us cover up all of these other interesting things were going on, which themselves had to address a certain level of violence, you right. know, and, and manage it in a certain way. It's complicated. It's complicated. Yes. I mean, as all these things, they should be, I mean, the complicated, these aren't easy problems and they aren't easy solutions. So maybe, maybe that's one of the things from a few minutes ago when we're, I'm trying to recognize, you know, that the difficult complexity of these decisions, there aren't easy either or questions. And again, this is politically expedient to make it easy questions because the, some of the questions, and this is just, we're still in the introduction and, and kind of, you know, anticipating the, the deep dives that you do in the chapters. But some of the things that you bring out in clearer relief for me is this notion that who gets the moral authority, so to speak, to wield violence, right? There's a monopoly of, of violence mm -hmm. already on the side of the state. So who gets to wield that violence in a way that can be deemed appropriate when not done in, in the spectacular fashions that we're talking about. And it does seem interesting, right, that I can't remember which election it was. It could have been it could have been 2016, but I'm remembering the Black Panther still being used as a kind of boogeyman in right wing media to to stir up all kinds of not just as a dog whistle it's, it's a little bit louder than that but to be a stand in for this violent other and so yeah you can see how there's a way in which these groups take up all the oxygen in the room and provide some of the cover in the fog for that strategic blindness by highlighting particular instances of 
of political violence, which, as you point out, are tools in, in a strategic tactical toolkit that aren't necessarily universalizable. And it's that universalization of nonviolence versus violence that allows for this type of simplification in which we can condemn from the start and restrict the kinds of tools that are available and provide a kind of moral, again, this question of moral uh, authority from which to condemn in advance any type of resistance other than, you know, a kind of nonviolence that at best is not just nonviolent, but silent, right? Off to the side, in the shadows, in ways that are different than clandestine, right? Just sort of marginalized. So yeah, this question was interesting for me. And there's a way in which there is a strategic reduction of, as you pointed out just a second ago, right? With the Black Panthers get reduced to violence rather than, and that it, that provides for a reduction of these other collective measures of providing for the community and providing these communal building tools. So there's a way in which there's a narrative, again, being served ideologically, politically, morally, quote unquote, that is able to, again, kind of simplify and intensify this nostalgia for simple answers to, to complex questions, or that the questions themselves are, again, in, in a certain naive way, simpler. And that's, as we know, in all politics, that's not true. But there's a way in which this yes, no kind of uh, logic or just this Again, not to shit on Kant out unduly, but as though there were, in all cases, a way to universalize all the maxims and really sort of ignore the micropolitical local problems on the ground. I kind of rephrased a lot of what, what you said, but this was just what was going off in my head. And I think that that broadly, that framework, there may have been some other points in the intro that I'm not sure if we, we skipped over, but I think that that does sort of broadly paint the picture. I'll allow you to respond. Obviously, I, I didn't have a question really. I just thinking out loud what we get prepared for very early on in the work. No, that seems great. That was good. I guess I, I brought this up, but one of the things that anticipates, maybe not in chapter two, which focuses on Mozambique and Portugal, which I found fascinating uh, first chapter after the intro. But one of the things that I guess broadly, and we don't have to go into detail yet about Foucault, we can save that for your chapter on liberation theology, which I know Coop wanted to discuss. But one of the things that I thought was interesting, and I mentioned this to you, is Deleuze talking in his little essay, Foucault in Prison, this opposition between, say, a classical, and this gets back to this old left, new left question that you bring up to a certain extent, but this question of uh, a classical intellectual who is, so to speak, trying to trying to lead the masses from aside or from from in front, you know, uh, and we can we can think about that. I know Deleuze puts Sartre on that position and he's not really trying to even denigrate Sartre, but this other question about sort of this unity of theory and practices, theory on the ground, this question of collective decision-making and whatnot, these other concepts that come out, even in that second chapter on Mozambique, this question of theory, I think, comes to the fore right from the start with, with Cabral and the aftermath and the struggle against Portugal. And I learned a lot from this chapter, specifically this notion 
for example, of a political void. I don't want to throw too much at you at once, but I, I thought we could at least spend a, a moment talking about this unique situation in Mozambique and its sort of post-colonial structure. And one of the things that I also wanted to bring up with you was this notion of what to do in the aftermath of the revolution with a petty bourgeois that might want to reassert power for itself. Uh, we don't have to address all of this, but I thought maybe just a general question, what made you decide to start with Mozambique? Was this a chronological decision? Was this sort of a strategic decision for exemplifying a multitude of questions, you know, beforehand to set up? One could even ask, like, is there a logic running throughout the ordering of the chapters? All of these, just anything you, you would like to respond on that front? I threw a lot at you right there, but I wanted to keep the questions relatively straightforward. So, uh, yeah, just I'll bounce it off of you. I'm sorry. Well, so let me part, start on the part about, about Deleuze's, you, you mentioned Deleuze's essay about Foucault in prison and the Prison Information Project, you know, that they both participated mm -hmm. in. Foucault is more central. And and even, you know, you can put in together that some of the things they say in that, in that dialogue about intellectuals in power, I think it's called Deleuze and Foucault. You know, one of the things that they were, hoping for, you know, and this was the sort of basis of that prison information group, was that the prisoners themselves could speak for themselves. Researching that project, you might have some, you recognize some limitations or difficulties that I'm approaching, I think, the same question from a different perspective. Because one of the things I'm interested in here, or trying even as a methodology, is to recognize that you know, you start by saying something like, it's it's not like there's a division of labor whereby intellectuals think and activists act. Instead, now here, I'm, there, that's in line with what Foucault and Deleuze were trying, Foucault, yeah, and Deleuze were trying to do there. But it's true that in movements, activists theorize, and sometimes in different terms than, than I don't know, professional intellectuals do or like that. But they're nonetheless that they produce concepts, they work with concepts, they mm -hmm. develop theory in a different register. It sometimes has to be recognized differently. So in some ways, you know, I hadn't thought about it this way, linking it to the prison information group or to Deleuze and Foucault and their things. But in some ways, I am trying to work through a similar, break a certain obstacle, if mm. I put it that way, that seems to isolate the production of concepts and theorizing to a professional intellectual class, which they're, you know, they're trying to get away from, even though, of course, the two men themselves were quite formed within it, you know, right. But, but this is, I think, a different way of approaching the same problem and recognizing, I mean, it's super clear to me. And maybe it's something, actually, this would maybe be a different discussion that my work with Tony for a long time has been directed this way, like trying mm -hmm. to, you know, sometimes we say think with the movements or think recognize the problems and theoretical problems that the movements themselves are posing. And I think that that's something Tony and I have been part of. So that's that's also a way, in a way, you could say it's, a, yeah, it's trying to address, it's nice the way you brought up this thing, you know, trying to address the same problem by saying that the movements theorize, that the movements produce concepts. And that's what I'm trying to do. You know, that's, if you step back a bit, that's what each mm -hmm. of the, you know, chapters and, and uh, national movements, they're each raising you know, producing concepts and raising questions like that. So that's one that's one side of what you were saying, which does seem super useful to me at a methodological level. You know, then you asked about the the way in which the first chapter, you know, the ordering of the chapters, why begin with so the first chapter, like you said, is about the 
colonies of Portugal and Africa, Guinea-Bissau, Mozambique, Angola, who were all conducting anti-colonial struggles. You know, they were in some ways the last on the continent, and in the sense that the the British colonies had already gained independence, the French colonies had already gained independence, the Germans, of course, you know, have a different history, but they were the last, in, and and Portugal's government was the longest-standing fascist government. Two at the time, and these things some way go together. The way it relates to what you were saying, oh, so there's maybe two reasons for starting this way. I mean, yeah. A, to recognize that this way of approaching the decade shouldn't start in the dominant part of the world. You know, some some ways to recognize right. that the creativity and political initiative is is coming from elsewhere. I, by which I don't mean that revolution can only happen in the third world. I would I would put it some ways like um, how would I say it? I think there's equal opportunity of revolutionary possibilities. That's one reason for that. And the other is that I felt like the the kind of developments in in these African colonies of Portugal were opening up the question of democracy. You know, first of all, that democracy isn't what the dominant countries preach it to be, and right. that the anti-colonial movements weren't aiming at reproducing finally joining the democracy of the developed world or something like right. that. That in fact they had, and so this notion, you know, Cabral often talks about, I'm going to call it Cabral, who was a leader of the revolutionary group in Guinea-Bissau. He often talked about this as a proposition of a revolutionary democracy, and he has ways of working that out, even actual structures, you know, practical matters of doing it. But at least an introductory first thing is to say, well, democracy can be something different. And even to aid this, this is just picking up on one last thing that you said, which had really struck me reading about this was that it, I think in part because of the fascist nature of the Portuguese state at the time, the anti-colonial movement, the revolutionaries didn't have or recognize that there weren't a kind of remnants of the colonial state that were around to be taken up. You know, when you think about other post-colonial nations, I to think about India and the Raj, et cetera, there were forms that then became part of the post-colonial nation. I was struck by this line referring, you know, at the time from someone who was an external observer, but there in Guinea-Bissau, and he said, like, the great advantage is that the Portuguese left no furniture laying about. You know, like this I found this of, fascinating. Yeah, this it's a great line. I mean, it's just a beautiful line. But, you know, so you might think, well, it's a poverty, you know, like, you know, there, there's nothing there. But, but they, the revolutionaries, you know, Cabral among them, thought, well, okay, now we can do what others couldn't do. We can actually invent democracy the way it should be. We have the opportunity. And so that seems, it also seems useful to me this, because today, too, there's, or I find, you know, this has been for some time now, you know, certain theorists, especially on the left, but I wonder how much this functions in activist circles, too, probably not as much, you know, who sort of, who, who feel that democracy as a concept has been so corrupted that it's no longer usable. I think it's important to retain the concept, you know, or to reinvent the concept. And that's some, in some ways what they're doing. So you asked, why would I start? I mean, there is, there's an order to the chapters for me, for readers, they can read it any way they want. It's not like there's a building narrative, but, but that seemed important to me as a, as a, as an opening recognition, you know, that you could put it another way, just say that revolution is possible. We can really remake the world. I mean, that's yeah. what they, they yeah. believe. And, I, and that's one thing I think is an important function for me of thinking about these revolutionary movements of the 70s today, you know, that they're focused on liberation in particular, you know, which I feel like is lacking today. I feel like there's been a kind of 
okay, not universally, but in, in large sectors, you know, there's been a degrading of our aspirations. And I think that's one thing, the audacity of these movements, which, you know, some people might want to say, oh, we, we were naive or something like that. No, they were recognizing the real possibilities of, of, uh, of a radical transformation. That was part of the reason that this interested me, especially the question about democracy coming from the African anti-colonial movements as a way of framing revolutionary possibilities. I think it makes a, a little bit more sense now that, you know, even chronologically it works. Like you're saying, if these other nations, India and these nations in Africa, if these other European countries had relinquished their colonies yet installed a kind of neo-colonial order to a certain extent by withdrawing there is this political void in these countries of these colonies of portugal that there is a belatedness right if if mm -hmm. all this other stuff happened in the 60s it was a belatedness of the 70s that led to and as you said there's no furniture left so you can't just appropriate sort of colonial structures, you're obviously not going to mirror the dominant structures in Portugal, right, which would be fascist structures. And there's also this tension then between sort of returning to a kind of traditional patriarchal type structure that's endemic throughout historical Africa or in inventing and experimenting. And so I think that then now hearing you talk about this, it also seems like part of your thesis is there's a belatedness to the defeats, if you will, of the subversiveness of the 70s, where that belatedness can now and should be taken up for us as our problems and in our situation and seeing that. And I think that that's where the audacity comes from for this call to invent an experiment that we can we can see ourselves in some of that that deferral and that time lag. The only other thing before before we move on, if, if you'd like, is this. What I really liked was this notion that in that political void, not just this question of inventing and experimenting, but along with that also comes with warding off certain power grabs by those who would have been a little bit better off in those countries, this petty bourgeois that may have easily betrayed. They were left with two options, basically, as you point out, they could have they could betray the revolution and try to seize power and or at least property and these other things some sort of hierarchy for themselves or they could commit sepokus they could they could kind of do a sort of class suicide it reminded me a little bit at least economically but also maybe politically of some of you know traditional marxist concepts like although this might be more ingles of, of withering away of the state or maybe that's even lenin i'm confusing I, I'm, I'm i'm merging a lot of thinkers uh Coop, that's it. I'm, I'm embarrassing myself, but you you understand what I mean. There's this question of a call for to sort of, again, to use a kind of Bedusian term, uh, to remain faithful to the event, right? This question of fidelity would require for them to disenfranchise themselves of that kind of presupposed privilege. To privilege the revolution, they have to deprivilege themselves. And um, I know that you don't go too deeply into this, but we know that that after what two years after uh, seventy five, I guess seventy seven is that is one of the dates that you mark, right? The book in sixty eight and seventy seven. There is, you know, internecine civil war and whatnot, which has its own history as well. But I just thought that was an interesting question about 
and we can, I assume, think about this in other situations of a residual privileged class, you know, and we see this in vanguards and avant-gardes too, where they want to privilege themselves and it turns into party politics as well. This question of, it reminds me of Guattari talking about mortal formations that resist a kind of will to power in a bad sense, right? They resist this will to immortalize themselves and encase themselves and and block off. It's part of that, that maybe that clearing of obstacles that you were describing. Yeah, I think at the time too, that that line, this is, you know, this is Amalcal Cabral's, Cabral's line and he, he developed it in a speech he gave at the famous Tricontinental Conference in Havana, you know, where the, and it, and it very picked up a lot of interest, this notion about, about class suicide, you know, in part it's thinking, I, I guess I would see it from two sides in a way, you know, in part it's, it's thinking that those who are central in the making of the revolution need to be transformed by it themselves, you know, because yeah. he's saying, Cabral's saying, look, it's only practical. The only literate people in the country are the petty bourgeoisie. In some ways, the role of the petty bourgeoisie in the in the anti-colonial struggle has to be has to be prominent in some ways. But that doesn't mean that then it has to become a petty bourgeois revolution. That there's a way that they have a choice to incorporate themselves into the revolutionary struggle. You know, another way you can so in that way commit class suicide. You know, which obviously doesn't mean a kind of Jonestown drinking the Kool Aid. <laughs> right, right. It means it means that they abandon the objectives that they inherited in a certain class. But, you know, look at it from another perspective, which which could be an interesting one that's maybe not Cabral's intention, but people coming from a variety of positions can play central roles in revolutionary struggle. I don't know. It'd be interesting. I, I guess I haven't worked through this in my mind. Maybe it's limited what I'm about to think is what if you were suggesting, what if we were to translate this to different, to different forms? Right. I mean, what could be the role of white people in an anti-racist struggle. You could say committing class, you know, committing race suicide. I don't think it means pretending that you're black, obviously. Right. It means it would have to mean, and I don't think it means necessarily, I wouldn't put it as like abandoning the privileges of your whitening because if Cabral's talking about the privileges of putting petty bourgeois colonized colonization, it's rather, of course, struggling for, you know, the question of what you're struggling for. That's what, yeah. and you don't have to, it, one doesn't necessarily struggle for the class or race or 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 gender position one was designated at birth. You know, Marx and Engels weren't proletarian. They were able to, I think, adopt a proletarian standpoint, as they said. It could be translated as a little bit of a lesson about what how to regard the possibilities of participating in revolutionary struggle when when the struggle isn't nominally pertaining to your your interests, uh, your you your identity of birth, or something yeah. like that. I mean, I I do think they would be part of your interests. I mean, they might not be your financial interests or something. You know, like you'd say Engels right. out of the factory or something. But but it certainly was Engels and Marx's political desire, and it would be a better world, you know, for them. And it seems to recall some of this discussion of you know unconscious libidinal in investments versus these molar class interests, this question yeah. of, of becoming minoritarian, right? Instead of reproducing the standard major model that privileges oneself. I mean, you gave the example of race. One still sees from white supremacists this notion of, of race traders, right? Yeah. Yeah. And do, do you feed into that and even give oxygen to that type of laying the discourse 
and to a certain extent, you know, if if you are going to take up those terms, then betraying one's race isn't quite what they have in mind because for them it is about what are you struggling for? Are you struggling to reproduce these dominant modes of patriarchy, hierarchy, which includes a whole slew of other things, not just race, obviously. It's never just that. Or do you recognize this notion, as you're saying, this multipolarity and multiplicity of, you know, these intersecting identities? And do you, for Deleuze and Guattari, and I, I said this recently, but, you know, for them, there is no higher race. There's always, it's always a question of struggling against these these systems of oppression and domination and there's no becoming major right so this you can cut off becomings and maybe that that is a nostalgia right let's forget about these these becomings which would be involved in these multiple lines of struggle i thought that that was a good concept and it was it is it, striking right it's it's a striking notion of again i i just it's what guatri calls the an institutional death drive but institutional and in the broadest sense because it's we are not trying to struggle for institutions that immortalize themselves just just for continuing to exist right to bring up some of our spinozist uh stuff that we talked about last time right there is a sense in which there's a i call it a will to power but there's this canadis if you will of existing status the powers that be in the broadest sense and to recognize those always mortal formations, as he calls them. I think that some of that came out very clearly in, in that phrase. Now, I know the next chapter, which was, again, it is kind of interesting to go from a national or at least regional struggle to this broader question of, of gay liberation, which I thought was, it gave us a, a sense of the fact that in your book, we're not just going to be jumping from country to country and not merely focus on regional questions. And I thought that there is a sense in which you're right, that what I really liked forefronting this was that the 70s, continuing some of the breakthroughs of the 60s, this post-Stonewall era, era, I liked that you foregrounded that sex, you know, we could think of it as like free love or whatever shouldn't be considered as as an end in itself right that that kind of reinstantiates the the dominance of pleasure as though and as you you show Foucault arguing you know there's nothing subversive about that right but that there's something more about these transformed social relations you point to the marks of the economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844 this emancipation of all the senses if you will which involves as you point out, because you had, and I know you just saw in the notes, you had the four overarching concepts, one of which is liberation, which is not just a kind of emancipation in any simple and straightforward sense, but also involves these transformations of societal structures, of overturning of, of systems of oppression and whatnot. So I guess I wanted to give us a little bit of space before jumping into, I know some of the stuff that Cooper was interested in in chapter four, for um, for highlighting at the forefront this question of gay liberation. Before jumping into that, which yeah. I, what I wanted to say, you know, the way you're, you're pointing out, I think, some ways in which the two questions, although extremely different, you know, the anti-colonial struggles in these, in these three 
African colonies and gay liberation movements, primarily in North America and Europe. The resonance that I see and that in some ways you're bringing out is that both of them at base are aimed at, if not complete, a radical reinvention of the modes of life. They have the opportunity for it. That's what the, you know, so when we were talking about the the lack of furniture metaphor thing, Mm -hmm. there's something similar here. So that in Foucault's, you know, this interview view that he did in the French journal Le Guépier, where he says, like you're saying, and this is resonant with what was written and proposed by the gay liberation movements at the time, you know, in the US and Europe, which is that, yeah, of course it's about, you know, about sex. You know, of course it's about sex and and more sex and easier sex and decriminalized sex, all these right. sort of things. But that this was only part of the movement. And so it was only part of the movement, partly in a way, and this is something that interests me for other, a slightly different, I don't mean to get off the topic, is they were saying at the time, the gay liberation front, that sex is only part of the movement because we are also a anti-war movement. We're also an anti-capitalist movement. We're also an anti-racist movement. You know, so they saw themselves already as linked in ways, unfortunately, which were not always responded to by other sectors of the movement at the time. But that's another matter. Right. But but also, and this is where Foucault allows it to bring out a more satisfyingly theoretical part of it. You know, Foucault says, like you say, that the, he says in that, in that interview that the actual having, you know, the actual homosexual sex, he says that that doesn't really disturb the dominant culture. What's really disturbing for the dominant culture, for the dominant heteronormative culture, is a new sensibility and a new mode of life. And he gives this, this is why it reminded me of Marx in the early manuscripts. He gives a long list of all these things that are renewed, you know, new modes of tenderness, of camaraderie, of of loving, etc., and so you can really read that list and you think, well, okay, well, heteronormative culture also does all those things. It has tenderness, it has camaraderie, et cetera. But the idea, and this is where gay liberation is not just about, it's also for heterosexual people. You know, it's it's about, it's about a, a transformation, a possibility of the construction of a new mode of life. A new sensorium, you know, would be the the Marx, mm-hmm. the Marx thing. You know, like so that, yeah, so that it's not just about okay, well, you have your mode of tenderness and we have our mode of tenderness. No, it's rather <laughs> a, a reinvention of, of these, um, yeah, of, you know, form of life is a convenient term, but you could say a new sensibility as long as you think about the senses. And this is what, you know, that passage in Marx is interesting for, as he says, when he's referring to the senses, then he too gives this long list of, you know, seeing, feeling, thinking, loving, etc. You know, the senses, he says, are the organs of our interactions with each other and the world. I think that's exactly what Foucault's trying to get at here, that there's a possibility within the, you know, when he says, you know, homosexuality is a mode of life, it's that within the gay community and within the gay liberation movement, there's the possibility of a radical reach the transformation of our organs of our interactions with each other in the world. This is what I was saying. What's what's it how's it similar to say Cabral talking in Guinea Bissau? There too, thinking about democracy, there's a there's a possibility of a radical reinvention here that's not just useful for us, but useful for everyone. And I would say that's what that's what we're thinking, you know, Foucault's thinking about. And I I would say that the gay liberation front in general is thinking about that. You know, like that this is uh this is a revolutionary possibility 
of a transformation, a radical transformation of our mode of life that is equally transformative, should be, or has the potential to be equally transformative of heterosexuals and non-binary population, you know, of everybody. It's not, it's not a localizable one. So that radical transformation, the opportunity for that seemed to me really, really interesting. And maybe for me, an unexpected resonance with the anti-colonial movements. And I liked how you linked this, and you were sensitive to Foucault's language in this interview, to this language of the virtual, which is seen as futural in it, is resonating with this notion that this kind of social transformation and queerness resonate in this rejection of the here and now, sort of, you know, this Erewhon, this nowhere that has utopian overtones without necessarily being Pollyanna-ish about it, right? Where, mm -hmm. and two, what I also thought was really interesting, where we shouldn't think in a sort of simplistic way about an oppositional mode of life, even if there are strands of opposition, but as a kind of a diagonal to a, this diagonality at a slant from the dominant modes that perhaps, again, if one is opposing, then it's it's done in a kind of, to use these words, we've already used this clandestine guerrilla type way, since simple opposition would sort of lead into a conflict that would would not necessarily uh, have the kind of ulterior effects one might imagine in the future. I guess the last thing I, I would say that that it reminded me of is part of the 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 rejection of the here and now resonates with some of what we've talked about with the struggles of the '70s and their subversion being part of our own. And you didn't use this word, but there is the sense in which. I know you used the word audacity, but I was thinking about there, there was also the sense of perhaps being complacent and compliant. And so to this chapter on gay liberation, I know you get to this later, but it comes part and parcel with this rejection of the production of docile bodies that Foucault is, is discussing throughout his work. So there is this question of docility. I know you bring it up, particularly in uh, the autonomia movements and the refusal of work but it does feel like there is an element of this here too in which it's the docility of let's say broadly heteronormative but also oedipalized structures in heteronormativity that is um that is being rejected yeah that's great i like the way you picked up the question about the virtual too mm -hmm. which you know i'm um of course it flags something for me, and and it's hard for me not to think of the Deleuze. What Deleuze always repeats when he says the virtual that it's real without being actual, and so that would be, and it's a challenging definition even because you know you recognize that it's not actual, meaning you know the French actual, like it's not historically present, it's not temporally present, it's not it's not actual in that sense, but it's nonetheless real, and that's where that's the challenge of. Each time Deleuze tries to work with the concept of the actual, what does it mean to be real without being the virtual, is real without being actual? And so with Foucault here too, you could say, and that maybe you could generalize it like you were trying to do, which is that maybe you could even put it this way, you know, for them and for us, you know, that how do we recognize that revolution is real? It's not yet actual, but yeah. it is real. And so that working through that is the... Um, I'm not sure exactly how to go forward with it right now. Maybe I shouldn't, but uh, it's a it's a nice challenge to think in that broad terms about it. 
this notion of the virtual as unexploited possibilities, it, it's somewhat re reminiscent of the untimely in Nietzsche. And in French, they translate the untimely as uh, the inactual, mm -hmm. right? Uh, which is kind of, it brings to, to light a little bit more starkly that contrast of the virtual and the actual. Obviously, that, that would be a whole discussion. We can leave that to one side. And I know we got about 20-ish minutes left. I definitely wanted to give space for something you brought up before the show, Coop. I'll kind of preface this. I think one of maybe the most challenging in a positive way chapters was the discussion of the struggles in Nicaragua and Iran and sort of how theology and Marxism interacted in those contexts. For me, coming from, you know, I come from kind of a Southern Baptist kind of fundamentalist milieu as as a kid. And just to like drive this home a bit further, you know, my my father asked to be buried with an American flag and an Israeli flag just to kind of highlight this kind of weird tension with religion and the way that sort of capitalism overcodes or decodes the sort of, you know what I mean? It sort of uses these kind of fundamentalisms to like prop itself up. So I don't know, it's a very interesting challenging read opening a new space to consider where theology and religion can have a space within a revolutionary movement or you know revolutionary theory etc so i don't necessarily have a question per se but just would like to maybe have you go through the sort of tensions between marxism and theology in these two different spaces and then maybe incorporate a bit about the way that you saw Foucault sort of getting some of it right, but where he kind of might have had some certain blind spots. I like you, for me too, uh, you know, especially the Iranian revolution was posed a big challenge, you know, for me. And and in part because of the of the aftermath and the result. And so it does make it very hard. We were talking about this earlier, you know, about more in general is I think like the three of us felt comfortable enough when we said earlier that it's really the intensity of the movements and their visions that matter, not the results, but, you know, damn it. When, <laughs> um, you know, that was in a way a challenge that I was trying to overcome. And, and yeah, so there were two things that in some ways the putting the two together helped me with, you know, Nicaragua, I, I had to learn a lot about Iran. Nicaragua, I knew a lot about, you know, even, you know, I knew a lot about Iran, uh, Nicaragua in the 1980s. and. And had experience then with in activist circles, you know, in, in Central America, then in El Salvador and Guatemala too, of of um, especially Catholic theology intersecting with communist projects. And liberation theology is really the term that develops there in Latin America, and I'm in some ways translating it to Iran to give this. So I guess one of the things like you're saying, Cooper, that it's um one effort is to try to destabilize the assumptions that we have about about theology and politics, you know, of their necessarily conservative nature and and such. I mean, yeah, I could even come back to this was not part of my thinking in this chapter, but it does make me think of it. When Tony was writing his book about Spinoza, so like a totally different context, you know, part of his insistence is that in early modern Europe, Theology was the train on which politics happened. 
So it wasn't even that you had to, you know, some ways you could say later, by the time we get to someone like Jefferson, there might be a kind of, well, you have to pretend you're doing the theology to do the politics. With Spinoza, you know, 17th century, he wasn't faking the religious part. You know, he was serious about God, but he had a really radically different notion of it, and et cetera. And so he's doing, right. that was a long detour to say, I felt like I have to set aside certain commonplaces and maybe prejudice I had about the, you know, especially the role of Islam in politics. So anyway, putting them together allowed me to do that. So I, I figured, okay, I can understand and I and I have a relatively, you know, deep understanding of the ways in which in Nicaraguan and, and in Latin America and translated to the North America too, that a certain Christian theology and revolutionary thought have fit together. And so I thought that, okay, well, why why shouldn't it be the same for me with it, with Islam? And so I could understand that. And so in, then, then in truth, so maybe just to introduce this, it's, in retrospect, now it seems weird. Why didn't we always talk about Nicaragua and Iran together? I mean, the revolutions succeed in the same year. They're both against a, a government that's uh, propped up by U.S. imperialism in a very direct mm-hmm. way. And they're both deeply embedded with this combination between theological and communist thought. So this is something I didn't know about Iran as well when I started. And so, you know, the first level for me of recognition was, and a lot of the historians, you know, often, you know, people who are directly experienced from Iran that now say working in the U.S., is to insist on the Marxist nature of the revolutionary process, you know, that then gets destroyed after the victory of the revolution, the two tumultuous years before the Islamic Republic is constitutionally formed, that they get kind of eliminated, whereas that they were the ones who were primarily conducting the revolution. Various different Marxist groups sometimes, and conducting a guerrilla armed struggle against the against the Shah's regime in a way that, you know, we can, you know, recognize elsewhere. And so that was the first thing to say, you know, some ways, you know, revealing the communist elements of the revolutionary process in the 1970s that then get eliminated. But that was a separate element for me, and this is where the, the combinations come with the Nicaraguan or Christian liberation theology, is the ways that many groups were mixed together and the theoretical references points for them were were mixed together between Islam and, and communism. And so it wasn't like there was, a, there was a kind of, well, you know, here's the Islamic groups and here's the communist groups, is that there was a great deal of interchange and a recognition of the a recognition of the potential of not just intersection between the two structures of thought, but a kind of, um, and even not just reinforcement, a kind of multiplication that goes on. That's the interesting part, kind of multiplication that, that goes on between the two. So then that's what, you know, in some ways, the it only really allows me to illuminate in this whole discussion one facet of both struggles, which were quite had a lot of different complex elements, but allows me to illuminate the the force of the Catholic liberation theology in Nicaragua and the and the Islamic communist you know movements and theorists in Iran. The way that again it was you know in this chapter too, it's Foucault. It's not Foucault throughout the whole book, but here too he helped me you know because one of the things he tries to emphasize Foucault got a lot of pushback for writing these newspaper articles celebrating the revolutionary movement in Iran, you know, both as a foreigner, et cetera. And, and what he tries to emphasize, you know, these are things that Foucault scholars are writing more about these days than than they were at the beginning, were these interviews in which he 
tries to develop the term political spirituality for what was going on here, you know, which might be related to this liberation theology, I guess, that I'm taking from the Latin American context. And what she's saying, you know, it's not necessarily religious. He says political spirituality happens in a lot of frames, but what it's really about is just what I've been talking about actually with Cabral and then also even with these, um, the Gay Liberation Front, which is the radical transformation of the subject. Foucault's been interested other times and sometimes hesitatingly, you know, of thinking not only about the the dispositif, the, the institutional structures that produce subjects, but how can we intervene into the process of, of the production of subjectivity and do it? And so this political spirituality for him provides an instance of that, you know, that in the revolutionary process in Iran, there was religion provided a terrain for them on which they believed that they could produce new subjects. Foucault, it might be helpful because Foucault thinking re revolution has not always been an easy thing for him. You know, I think that this provided a, an optic for being able to understand a radical transformation of the processes of the production of subjectivity, one in which we could intervene. So anyway, that's what, that's where, you know, that's where I'm, you know, trying to think this and why I find it inspiring. And, you know, might even come back to now that we're, both of you have, have, you know, kind of forced a deep dive into these three subsequent chapters and they're, and they're maybe all revolving around this same thing, which is a kind of, I wouldn't say blank slate, but the possibility of a radical transformation of our modes of life and processes mm -hmm. of subjectification. And so I was even including democracy in this too, like that these are all instances where, you know, it goes further than just the emancipation of the subjects that are existing. It's about a process of liberation in which there's a transformation, not only of the structures of uh, social institutions, but also a radical transformation of the processes of subject subjectification, you know, something like that. That seems um, it's something I hadn't thought about, but you guys are forcing me to see these sort of common thread running through this. I do think that one thing that I suppose was interesting to see is because I think that one of the pushbacks you have to Foucault is that the religious forces merely hijacked the revolution. And I think that your point is that it's it's more complex than that, just to, to simplify your argument. But I did find that there were, at the very least, some dominant structures that push back. On the one hand, I was interested in your comment about uh, Pope John Paul II being a little bit appalled. I guess that's a bad Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very uh, appalled. At, at the conjunction of Catholicism and, and communism. You know, for us, again, you know, I was born in 85, Cooper born in 82, so I don't have very many memories of Pope John Paul II. We may have a more flowery vision of what a pope could be with the current pope, but it makes sense during, you know, the Cold War era, there would be this anti-communist pope. So there is a kind of attempt to push back from the highest hierarchical position of Catholicism in the Vatican. And then you know, as you said, again, not judging revolutions by their aftermath, but this, I mean, hijacking isn't even maybe strong enough word for what happened to a lot of the, the Marxist revolutionaries in post-revolutionary Iran with all of the things that you, you pointed out, which obviously there's 
plenty of evidence that we could look at, but, you know, political imprisonment up to assassination and repression, yeah. right? So I guess I would say maybe there's an aspect of Foucault's point that is true, but that perhaps it puts too much emphasis on a simplistic type of that it was religion itself that somehow did it. And not, for example, the fact that what we're talking about really is is power structures of the clergy, of the imams. It's really kind of a petty bourgeoisie type deal to a certain extent. It's it's really that type of power structure that we're talking about and not necessarily a straightforward pushback on the religious front. And that overemphasis perhaps, again, obscures that tie that you're forming between uh, Marxism and, and religion. As you're pointing out, I, I mean, I, for certain readers, I guess I should include myself among them. As you're pointing out, it's not that hard to understand that there was a political conflict within the Catholic Church. We had revolutionary priests and we have a reactionary pope and they have a political conflict between them and the pope wins and, you know, like that sort of thing. If we understand that, why can't we understand the same thing happening within within the Shiite clergy and uh, there are revolutionary not just priests, but revolutionary activists, you know, that see Islam in a certain, you know, there's a conflict within the within the religious community and structures, a political conflict that that's a terrain. I mean, that's when I just come back to Tony's thing about Spinoza, he, he said, and it's in some ways still true today, which is that religion can be the terrain on which political struggle happens. And we have to recognize it as such, rather than just saying that whatever, all religion is a bane to politics or something like that. I mean, um, don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm saying we should all now become faithful or that somehow theology is really the answer. I'm, it's rather to open up a recognition of what at some points and in these two instances did take place on that terrain that was have, you know, presented potentials that we could embrace and, and learn from. This is something that I, I mean, I brought up Badu earlier, but this is something that that comes up, you know, again and again with this notion of of fidelity to an event and what's the status mm-hmm. of religiosity. And and Badu Alenka Zupanchich has said that religion is the fifth truth condition for for Badu. And it mm-hmm. and, and I guess last but not least, and I'll throw Badu to the side for a moment, but you had brought up this with the notion of of class suicide. There was this notion that those who are at the vanguard or those who are at the forefronts of the event, there is a tendency where they can make the event about themselves. And Badu, in his little book on ethics that Coop and I have reviewed in recent months, you know, he points out that that is one type of, of an overcoating of the event that is particularly fascist, where a group thinks that the event is for themselves and not for all. And I will say, and then I'll see the floor, this notion, what I, what I, a little passing detail that I thought was really interesting about the initial pushback against the Shah. I mean, you build up the history up to this, but you know that it's maybe it was 75. I can't remember the year exactly. So don't quote me on that. But during the month of Ramadan, there is these protests that are seemingly tolerated. But since they persisted after this obviously very holy month, that's when you have the the political pushback. It says, you know, there's something interesting about that conjunction of this very holy time and it being 
part and parcel of this, again, this rise in intensity of protest and, and revolt. So maybe that's just a little detail that's, I mean, you could say it's anecdotal, but it's it's just a part of the situation on the ground that helps to bolster some of this argument that the political resistance against the regime was not in some sense divorced from religious sentiment. Absolutely, yeah. I just want to give you a chance, if you will, if you have a project that you're working on, just so we know what to expect from me in the future, if you're already working on something, or if you have something that you're sort of kicking around, you know, just kind of maybe leave us with what we can expect, if you will, virtually, futurally from you. I'm never very good at at explaining what I'm working on, I, you know, partly because I feel like it's always been true that 90% of the things that I start end up getting thrown out. And so it, it seems useless to explain them. But there are, there is some practical thing that, you know, Tony and I continue trying to work. He's been sick for a while. And, and, but, you know, it was, I, I always said it was, it was a condition of our friendship that there was always a book, you mm -hmm. know, like, so mm -hmm. in order for us to continue the phone conversations every week and my constant traveling to wherever he was, you know, at the time is sort of, we always had to have something we were working on. I was sort of like the mode of being together. He told me about, I don't know, it was six, eight, nine months ago or something like that. He said, you know, I might not be here for a whole book, yeah. but let's try, you know, starting. And if they end up just being a couple chapters, they can be articles rather than a book, or maybe we can, maybe we'll get long enough to get the book, you know? So anyway, that's I, one of the just practical things I have to work on now is, is um, there are three of these, I don't know if they're, chapters or articles or what they are that I have to finish up that are in different stages of things. And they're, it's a little complicated. It is probably more than listeners need to know, you know, but it's, it's a little complicated figuring out what, like, I don't want to just write something and sign it for the two of us, you know, yeah. how, how to work through that. That's something I need to, to get to. There aren't Tony's partner, Judith Ravel, and we've talked about the there aren't these, you know, like unpublished works that we've, I don't think we're going to get more of Tony's books, you know, just for, I, there aren't, there's a lot of materials. Like if anyone were interested in Tony, the, they're all at the EMEC, the great, mm -hmm. fantastic yeah. French archive, you know, they're all there, but there aren't, there aren't books to come. So I, I sort of think that actually these essays that I'm trying to finish up are sort of the last of, yeah. at least that I can think of, you know, the last of Tony's, Tony's writings. So anyway. Maybe it's an act like you were in your Badusian vocabulary. Think of it as acts of fidelity. No, it's acts of friendship. That's a better way. Right. So, um, that's what we're, and that's what it was in these, you know, last periods was, you know, Tony made Tony happy to work together. And so, you know, it was important to keep working on projects, even when health questions made it, made it difficult. I know that's not really answering your question. It went no, into no, the, it, it, it veered it, into the personal rather than you no, asking no, for I, something intellectual. Sometimes that's that's a part of the happy hour is infusing some of the personal. You know, I mean, it, thinkers have lives too, and some of and, and some of Barely. those details are <laughs> well, uh, some of those details are um, fascinating and help to give a little bit of insight. Yeah. But Michael, I do want to thank you for coming on the show, and I do want to wish you a happy Sunday and we'll be in touch. I think it'll be probably two weeks from now that the episode will drop. I know you need to go. So I just want to thank That's you. That's terrific. Again. Yeah. Thanks. And I'm, and I'm grateful that, that the both of you are willing to take such careful consideration, you know, not, not just sort of swimming across these things, but actually looking closely and differently at, at the writing. I, I really appreciate it. I know that's part of your, that's your brand, but I, well, I appreciate it. 
we yeah. only scratched the surface, honestly, but there's only so yeah. much time. I mean, we would right. take of course yeah. four or five episodes to do the whole <laughs> book. But I do think listeners will will be happy to to know that, as I said, we just scratched the surface. There's a lot sure. more to dive into. So take a look at the Subversive 70s and Michael, we wish you well and, and we'll be in touch. And, uh, you know, maybe this time next year, you might have something else to share with us. Of course. Have a wonderful day, and I'll be in touch soon, okay? Okay, thanks so much. Thanks again, Michael. Bye. And once again, thanks to Michael Hart for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. The very rules of eating, of negativity, and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the dream, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in the block work orange.